The future is full of mysteries. My name is Carl Sagan. And you must wonder how I come to you here today. On this little pale blue dot floating in the vastness of space. Among the billions of stars in the galaxy, you wonder how I can come to you today, decades after I have shuffled off my mortal coil. But as you fall closer and closer to the event horizon of a black hole, time slows down. And for me, the millennia have gone by slowly. In fact, for every second of my existence, you have lived a thousand eons. This is the theory of relativity, the theory of living in space and time. But if I was there today, what would I see in the brilliance of technology? Certainly, I would be one to say that electric vehicles are the future. Welcome to Pterodactyl. This is Pterodactyl, the official podcast of the Central Washington University Electric Vehicle Club. My name is Galen O'Connor. I'm the club president. This week on the podcast, I interviewed a very interesting guy. He's an American living in New Zealand, in a place called Wellington, New Zealand, of all places, because Wellington just happens to be the name of the mascot of this university. Isn't that so quinky dinkle? You can subscribe to this podcast at centralev.org slash podcast. Remember to hit us up on all of the Instagram, Twitter pages and stuff. Just go to centralev.org. It's all right there. On May 27th, remember this, May 27th is the Central Washington University Sustainability Awards. They're going to be digital this year sustainability awards this time it's digital check it out and my guest this week also has social medias you can find him on twitter at limiting the the and on youtube at the limiting factor My 
guest tonight is a YouTuber who goes by the name The Limiting Factor on YouTube and Twitter. His name is Jordan Gizegi, and he talks a lot about batteries, a lot about Tesla, and a lot about where we are right now in terms of the technological advancement in the mobility space and ventures highly educated guesses about where we are going. In his Twitter bio, he does not tell you that he is a man, nor does he tell you that he is a YouTuber. He tells you that he is a mustache, a mustache on a mission, that he seeks to find what's coming next. So, Jordan, do you have like a symbiotic relationship with your mustache? Or is it more like mutualism? Is it even parasitism? I do believe it has become a, a symbiotic relationship. Uh, it originally started in November, and it's become a permanent resident since then. Mustache, same question to you. <laughs> I don't know if the, I don't know if that came through on the mic. <laughs> he, he just rubbed his mustache on the microphone. <laughs> It is a beautiful thing, sir. Thank you. Nice, uh, nice uh, facial hair that you're sporting yourself. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, it's the the two day forget about it. Yeah, I think everybody's kind of in that mode somewhat because of uh, the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why I've kept it. And then I shaved my head as well. Uh, that was as a result of the lockdown. Oh, really? Oh. Mm-hmm. See the way yeah. you look like the way you look like right now it reminds me of one of my former sergeants in the National Guard. You look just like Sergeant Reddington and it's it's disturbing. <laughs> Give me 20. <laughs> Jesus. He used to make me oh god. Oh god, he used to make me sing <laughs> Come on. <laughs> he used to make me sing the Popeye the Sailor Man song. Like, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Doot, doot. And I don't even know why. He just thought it was hilarious to be able to, to do that to a private. And I would actually do it because I was afraid of him. <laughs> yep. Got to exhort the, uh, exert the authority. Yeah. So, Mr. Mustache, can you mm-hmm. tell me why you call your channel The Limiting Factor? What does that mean? Also, you are in New Zealand. Is it just me or do you have an American accent? I do have an American accent. I'm originally from Ohio. I uh, came to New Zealand oh, about 2003 and it was originally just for a holiday. Uh, I stayed for a year, went, came back to the U.S. and then I came back to New Zealand just to visit, visit the friends that I had made in the first year. And then they talked me into skipping my flight home. And here I am. Oh, what, like 15 years later, something like that. You're not being held against your will, right? No, no, it's just uh, things continue to work out here. There's no, no reason to leave. To answer your question about the limiting factor, it, I've held a lot of different jobs over the years. And I found that there's always some limiting factor or some bottleneck that's preventing things from happening, preventing them from getting done. And I'm not sure when the idea came to me to name my channel that. At some point, the idea did come to me and it seemed like the perfect 
name for a channel because so often I see people focusing on technologies that are maybe five or 10 years out. I'm interested in the technologies are right on, right on the cusp of landing in our lap. And all right, so what's keeping them from landing in our lap or what's keeping those from being scaled at a massive level? And then another thing that played into it was the first time I mentioned to somebody that I wanted to call the channel the limiting factor, they asked, so what's the biggest limiting factor? What's the limiting factor for humanity? And I was like, oh, wow, well, that, to me, that would be energy. Any time that we transition to a new energy source, it changes the face of humanity. And so it worked out well, and I, I've decided to, to stick with it. When did you decide to get into the YouTube game? Originally, I had a YouTube channel about five years ago, and it just didn't fly. It didn't have legs. And it was about um, my time and experiences here in New Zealand. I've, I worked on that channel for about five or six months. So I still had all the equipment here, editing software, et cetera. And I've been waiting for something to come along that I could uh, get back into it because I like creating things and I like sharing. Late last year, there was a lot of uh, YouTube buzz around what Tesla could be doing with their batteries. And I started digging into that. And it was just, it seemed like it's not even a niche. It's something much larger than a niche. Batteries are massive. I mean, you look at microchips. Um, Look at all the YouTubers covering microchips. What's AMD coming out with? What's NVIDIA coming out with? Intel and hundreds of YouTube channels. How many channels do we have like that for batteries? Mm. None mm. that I can think of. Well, you and McTurk, maybe. McTurk? He's from uh, the United Kingdom. E-U-A-N, I want to say, and then McTurk. That's the only one I can think of, though. Oh, cool. I might have to look him up. I just found him on you LinkedIn. Guys- you guys should definitely do a collab. Definitely. Excellent. Electrochemist. I, because where I'm weak is because I've only been doing this research for five or six months. A lot of the basics I'm weak on. I'm really strong on the technology and the potential technologies. But as far as, like, for instance, how a battery works at the molecular level, um, I don't know if there's a difference between the way things intercalate on the positive, or sorry, on the cathode and anode. Uh, and I haven't found any good explanations mm. as as mm. as to if there is a difference. Because does the lithium become part of the structure when it enters the cathode side, like nickel, uh, manganese, cobalt? I know on the graphite side, it just sits on, sits between the sheets. But some of what I've seen is that the lithium becomes part of those sheets on the cathode side, and that's something I'm trying to figure out right now. That somebody with a background in electrochemistry would probably know right off the bat. Mm, mm. And I don't have a background in either. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of editing software do you use? What do you prefer? Um, What is it? PowerDirector, CyberLink PowerDirector. It's uh, one of the cheapest ones. And because I don't do anything really fancy, I'm basically just given slideshows. Um, I didn't need anything really powerful, so it, it does the trick. I think it's about half the price of Adobe. So you said a, a year ago you were looking at batteries. Everyone mm. has a story. Everyone has a reason for why they do what they do. I'm wondering if you started this YouTube channel talking about batteries and Tesla because 
maybe you yourself bought a Tesla or did you start into that besides is, is, is that something that you're planning on, on doing, getting a Tesla? I'd love to get a cyber truck. I would love <laughs> that would be, yeah. Uh, I've, I've actually thought about, you know, one of those, when one of those cyber trucks comes out, moving back to the U S and just living out of the cyber truck, uh, until I build a house there. Cause I'd like to build my own house. I just like learning things and the channel originally the focus was meant to be broader than te- broader than Tesla and batteries. That's just what's captivated my interest at the moment. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm always learning some, about something new and the channel seemed like a good avenue to, to share that and another way to create and learn and pick other people's brains. And that's, to me, it's the greatest benefit of having a channel. People become aware of you and people with knowledge start contacting you and talking to you and it kind of snowballs. And as far as going back to your question about the software that I use, the thing that's really helped me the most is Audacity. It's an audio program. Do you use that? Yeah, I use. I have a 2011 MacBook Pro, so I've been using GarageBand mainly. I think I might rerun all the episodes through Audacity to bring the audio levels up because 60 decibels is is where I want it at, and right now I'm I'm at around 40 because GarageBand has an auto normalizer that makes sure that none of your audio is, is getting clipped or anything like that. But when they do that, they don't normalize it loud enough. I, I want to be able to normalize it at 60 decibels, which is the standard in, in the entire audio freaking industry. But that's that's my one pick with GarageBand, but I've been using GarageBand forever. I do have Audacity. It's I I just don't like the user experience as much. Mm. Yeah, the interface is. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, I almost made you spit out your coffee. <laughs> the interface is, <laughs> but in terms of like what it can do, and once you get used to it. It's, I've found it um, to be the best program because my CyberLink package, it came with an audio editor, but it was, even though it had a great interface, uh, it was really finicky and often didn't do what I wanted to do. Uh, Audacity is bare bones. I can set macros. Um, there's a lot of automation I've built into it that has saved me a lot of time. Have you, have you done any episodes on DIY Powerwalls? As in somebody like Jehu Garcia, who is, I think, probably the biggest face for this movement, recycling and upcycling old, not just battery packs from old EVs that maybe have crashed or have been taken to the junkyard, but individual 18650 lithium-ion cells. I myself am personally really fascinated by the secondary marketplace for these old batteries. Have you done any episodes on this? No, I haven't, but I think it's a, a great idea. A lot of people don't fully appreciate what a million mile battery means. It's essentially like, I think of it, you, all these futuristic sci-fi movies, they have some sort of power source that lasts infinitely. And these, <laughs> these million mile batteries are the closest thing we're going to get to that for a while. Yeah, yeah, you have to recharge them, but they're just not going to degrade. They're going to last 20 or 30 years, which is amazing mm-hmm. out of a closed mm-hmm. system. Hmm. 
Yeah. So I think the secondary market will get much larger with these. In fact, uh, somebody floated the idea to me that uh, JB Strobel's Redwood Materials that does the battery recycling, they said uh, they think he might actually get into that as well, the secondary market for batteries. I don't know if that's the case or not, but um, I like the idea. I might be going down a rabbit hole to try to get JB on the show because I've done a couple of interviews with some of the, I've done an interview with one of the guys who actually raced him back in the day in before Tesla was ever a thing. I did an interview with John Whalen's the guy with the white zombie. I don't know okay. if you've ever, do you know the I white zombie? No, I haven't heard of the white zombie. I'll look it up real quick. Yeah. He actually took the land speed record from JB. When was JB trouble doing that? What year? Oh, Hmm. 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 What do I want to say? Late nineties or early two thousands is what I want to say. Okay. I, I wouldn't be able to say the year. Cause the first time I ever saw electric cars or solar powered cars, I, I think it was early nineties and there was um, some of them going cross country and they went right through our town. And so like, of course, small podunk bunk town of 10,000 people, mainly mm. corn and cows. Uh, yeah. Everybody showed up or a lot of people showed up and watched. It's pretty cool. 10,000 people is more than the town that I grew up in. Oh yeah. Where, where are you I, from? I grew up on South Whidbey Island and it's North of Seattle. It's in the Salish sea out there in Puget sound. Okay. And okay. The, there are 3000 people in the immediate area of that town that I grew up in. There are a few towns on the island. It's a pretty long island. That would be remote. It uh, mm. sounds like it has a, uh, a kind of romance to it. I just picture salt spray and yeah, it's similar to way to what the way it is here in Wellington where you're just surrounded by water all the time and the house is, you know, rust out and the paint degrades because it's, they're always getting sprayed with salt. But Wellington is pretty windy. I imagine Puget Sound is, is it pretty calm there? Puget Sounds not all the time. Uh, in in the Puget Sound region, there's this thing that exists. It's this constant spinning storm, basically. Okay. It's, it's the weather pattern. It's not really a storm, but because of the way that all of the mountains are shaped, it's it, it's the 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 weather. It comes off of the ocean and it comes into the Straits of Juan de Fuca over the Olympics and, and whatnot. And it, it hits Puget Sound and then it hits the Cascades. It goes south and then it spins back up north and then it hits the Olympics and it spins for a couple of days. That weather pattern just spins okay. there and then goes on off into the mountains. That's a good description. I've, uh, I've been up to the, to the, the Ho rainforest when I was younger. Mm. And so I'm familiar with the weather, but I didn't know what caused it. And I don't, I don't know what you call that weather, weather pattern. I was thinking of a, a gyre, but I think that's something that's actually like in the ocean, in the water. Yeah. Everyone in Seattle is going to hate me because it's a really common word and I can't remember the name of it right now. Of course, I'm outside of that weather pattern. This, 
university is in a town called Ellensburg, which is in the direct center of the state. If you stick a pin in the center of Washington state and you go up a little bit, that's where Ellensburg is. Okay. It's a lot sunnier out here. It is a lot more calm. Of course, we do have plenty of wind coming through. So we have a bunch of windmills or wind turbines, I should say, on the hills around here called the Wild Horse Project. Not nearly enough, in my opinion, but there are a lot of wind turbines around. When I was younger, I went to California and saw my first wind turbines. But now here, for instance, in Wellington, Wellington is, uh, I know a lot of cities say this, but it's like the Saudi Arabia of wind. It's just constant wind here. And they put massive windmills up on the hills. And I know some people don't like them, but to me, it's absolutely beautiful. And to me, it really sets off the landscape. Yeah, me too. I love looking at them. It's, it's become a fabric of the identity here is, is the, the wind turbines. You look at the logo uh, on the footer of our university webpage, and you'll see a little wind turbine spinning in the hills. You look at the environmental club, they've got a windmill on their logo when people talk about Ellensburg, oftentimes they'll say beautiful serene mountains with windmills on them. Yeah. I should mention that you say you live in Wellington, New Zealand. Correct. Wellington happens to be the name of our mascot, Wellington the Wildcat. <laughs> nice. It must be fate. <laughs> fate has brought us together. <laughs> As a result, there was a survey done of the university population as to what we should call our Volvo, our 1990 Volvo 240DL, that we will be converting to electric, probably using battery packs from crashed uh, first-generation vehicles like the Nissan Leaf. And one of the suggestions was Welly's Little Ricer. Nice. I really like that one. I really like that one. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. It's a winner. Okay. Tesla, right? Mm -hmm. Elon has been in the news for all sorts of things all the time. Do you have a personal opinion on separating what Elon does from what Tesla does? Or do you think that they are the same? If Elon winds up going full Charlie Sheen on us, A, how would you feel? And B, what would you do about it? Well, I don't know if I could do anything about it, but I do monitor his uh, psychological health as an investor. I, I keep uh, close tabs on it. And if he didn't have a Twitter account with millions of followers, I, I don't think people would pay too much attention. He wouldn't seem that out there because I know a lot of people like for instance mm. that will try to shed material things so that's not anything new it's just usually a guy who's a billionaire it's so in the public limelight we've never seen somebody like that do it but for an individual to do it it's just not that crazy or when he made the comment about the pedo guy <laughs> for last year <laughs> personally I thought that was hilarious and if it would have been an exchange because the pedo guy told him to shove the submarine up his ass mm. um, Mm. So I don't, I don't think his response was too out there. 
<laughs> it's just not something the CEO of a company. Uh, he certainly is managing to get visceral reactions from people you wouldn't expect to <laughs> react that way. Oh, yeah, and then the news, of course, they're just, it's so clickbaity that it's like, ooh, this is something we can jump on. It seems like every day is a slow news day for most of the major news outlets. Uh, but with that said, I think if something happened to Elon, Tesla would just be fine. I think he's imbued that company with such a mission that if something happens to him, I don't see it slowing down. He's got all the pieces in place, and it's just a matter of scaling now, particularly after Battery Day. That's the keystone of the entire thing. And mm. if you look at the talent that he sucked in, there's dozens of people in that company who could have done their own startup and all individually could have done amazing things. Mm. So if Elon goes, somebody will, I don't think anybody can really fill his shoes, but I think the mission will continue. Hmm. Hmm. The reason that I bring it up, I really, really, really like Tesla. And I think Elon is one of the coolest people in the world. But some of his fans seem a little bit like cult members to me. I, I hate to say this because I really like most of them, most of them. But they seem a little bit, and I really hate to say this, but they seem like Trump fans at times. And I, yeah. I know that is really, really bad to say. That is the worst thing to say. I think that if Elon actually did go off the deep end, this mob of Tesla bros might not even recognize it. And mm -hmm. I do think that part is a little bit dangerous. For now, though, I think we're safe enough. Mm -hmm. I, I personally, I don't agree with his fight against the government of California but I don't live in California and I don't run Tesla. But I think that we should always remember that we are all only human, even the best of us. And I absolutely think that Elon is one of the best of us, but he's still human. Yeah, I agree. There's a, a lot of people that have kind of been, everything seems everything is so contentious at the moment and this this is frequent throughout history there's times when people uh it seems like things are broken and people will cling to whatever they can whatever flotsam is floating around and they'll bond their identity to it nice hitchhiker's to, guide reference by the way what's that i said nice hitchhiker's guide reference by the way is it i've i've never read that all the way through i read like the first few pages oh. God, oh my God. <laughs> he's running to get something. And now he's running back. Okay, I don't actually know which ones it's in. I have Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy here. Mm -hmm. I have So Long and Thanks for All of Fish, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, and Life, the Universe, and Everything. In one of these books, there's a great... There, he, I think all throughout, he refers to things that just wash up with the tides. But there's a scene where there's Arthur Dent and his best buddy in the world. They're stuck on a planet and suddenly shows up the wash. <laughs> and uh, 
the the flotsam and jetsam of of life itself is converging on this point. There is a disturbance in the wash, and it's they call them the wash, mm-hmm. which is the the stuff of space time. Is uh, if you do you do Audible or anything like that? Do you listen to audiobooks? Yes, more and more. I don't have the attention span to sit down and read a book mm-hmm. anymore. Usually I put an audiobook on while I'm doing something. Most of the narrations of, of this series are so, so, so good. I mean, they, they've all done one. Douglas Adams did his own narrations. Martin Freeman did one. Stephen Fry did one. So whatever version you get, it's going to be a good one. And it's so funny. It's, it's, it's just the humor there, but yeah, sorry for, sorry, sorry for throwing Oh no, I like it when people are passionate about things like that. We were talking about Elon and I know personally that Elon does, does read the Hitchhiker's Guide. He, he has been inspired. He's hidden little Easter eggs from the series and he tweets about it every now and then. Yeah. That and the culture series, which I, I, I've only, Listen to one of the audiobooks for that. There seems to be a battery development almost every day in this world. How do you keep up with it? How do you how do you absorb it all? Do you even is are there things that you miss that pass you by and then you find out weeks later, oh shit, that thing just totally went by me. Yeah. When I first started this process of learning. I really had to get down to the nuts and bolts and the basics to understand what actually is possible. And once I established that, it gave me a good filter as to what I can just toss out real quick and in disregard. Like for instance, the, you may have seen this uh, discussion I had with Yvonne from the EV stock channel where I was talking about the Samsung battery and it had, it contained silver in it. I was like, well, that battery's never going to go anywhere. You need bulk materials in order for a battery to work. So little things like that. But there's other things that I just haven't had time to look into. Mm. Uh, one example is Maxwell's dry battery electrode. There's several ways to actually apply that coating. The way that I was focused on was you run it through an extruder and it gets flattened out by some heated rollers and it gets compressed onto the electrode. But there's actually ways to do it where you spray that electrode material onto the foil. And with that, that might actually be what Tesla uses to- Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, what? Yeah, for instance, uh, electrostatic coating. You know the way that they, uh, have you heard of electrostatic painting? uh, Sure, let's say I have. Okay, I'll explain that real quick. Basically, you apply a charge to the car and a charge to the, uh, the mist that's coming out of the spray machine, and it creates like a static cling, and it just per- forms a perfectly even film of paint on the car. That's my understanding. It's probably oversimplified. Well, if you could do the same thing with this dry material for the dry battery electrode, just uh, run that foil through a room that's loaded up with uh, like charged particles of the dry battery electrode material, Basically, you're just spray painting those electrode foils with this stuff. That would be a lot faster than running it through an extruder. I mean, I don't know if there's a speed limit to that. Wow. So uh, this is, I've I've been having a conversation with somebody else about this because they've found another way that they can do it. It's somebody from a news organization, so I'll let him break that. 
he has a, a lot of good mm. ideas. Mm. But it's something I, I didn't focus on because I didn't think it was needed. But now that Elon said we were going to have Terra factories, well, I think that pretty much requires a line that can do 5 or 10x production speed. And for that, you might need that electrostatic type coating. In the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio uh, directed and was the star of the, where he goes around the world and talks about climate change back in 2016, before the flood, I just watched that last night, hoping to get his publicist to let me do an interview with him. Of course, no, of course. But in that, in that movie, he's talking to Elon, he says, and Elon says, if we had 100 gigafactories, we could solve the energy problems of the world. Yeah, and that was with a factory that, uh, I'm assuming he was talking 100 to 150 gigawatt hours. So if you have a terra factory, that's only 10. That is so doable. That is manageable. Yeah. It's just getting those raw materials. Mm. I'm, cont I'm containing mm. my excitement right now because I... <laughs> I can see that. The idea of that just blows my mind. Yeah. Anytime you have an order of magnitude improvement, like what they're doing with rock rockets, I think is just anything you can move that you can use to move the needle for, forward for humanity. I, I've always felt like humanity is just still in its infancy. And yeah. there's so much that we're able to do and so much that I'd like to like to see us do in the future. Maybe it's because I watched so much Star Trek as a little kid, but I don't think this is our final, uh, our final form. You, you watched Star Trek. Have you seen the model names that Wallbox, the Spanish EVSE company, is coming out with? The no. names, the names of their EVSEs, EVSE stands for electric vehicle charger. The names of the chargers they're coming out with. They've got a, a Quasar, and a pulsar <laughs> i love it yeah there's there used to be a a company called quasar when i was a kid i don't know if you saw maybe it was at the end of he-man or something like that and went quasar <laughs> <laughs> okay now we're going to play a game that on today's episode we are calling john be good enough as you know the name on everyone's mind in the battery field is John B. Goodenough, who, as a scientist and a college professor, can also add the title of inventor to his street cred. Because if it wasn't for him and the rest of his beautiful colleagues, we would all still be quite literally in the dark. But what do you know, Jordan Gisigi, about some of these other inventions throughout history? I have a list of some of history's wackiest inventions. And it's your objective to tell me if this invention is real or not real. If it's real, then you say, John, be good enough. If it is not real, then you say, that's a load of Dick Cheney. Are you ready to play? Oh, yeah. I like it. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> a, a portable radio in a straw hat. Oh, man. I'll go with John B. Good Enough. John B. Good Enough. This is real. Fittingly called the Straw Hat Radio, it was invented by an American in 1931. 
1931, and it was it was a hat made out of straw with a giant antenna sticking out the top and a horn in the front. So you you listened to the. <laughs> you didn't hear that coming. I, I I didn't expect to be right on that. No, I, I was expecting to, to get the buzzer. So I'm pleasantly surprised. It, it it didn't really catch on, and the website that I got this from says it didn't make the waves. <laughs> but um. Okay, B. A bicycle that you can ride both on land and on water. John, be good enough. John, be good enough. This is real. It was invented by a Parisian in 1932, and it consists of six different buoys, two of which stick out the sides of the wheels, and the other four are on the handlebars and behind the, the rider. So you could, you, it's, it's got the regular bicycle tires. You can ride around on the road. But these giant buoys sticking out the side, you just ride into the water. I don't know how it works. I've never seen it work. But it seems cool to me. I've seen like a bike on the water, which was the reason why I said John be good enough. Um, had like paddles and floats. But yeah, I've never seen the one that does the land and the water. Mm, mm, mm. So would you like to, me to take that point away from you? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm keeping my points. I'm going to need okay. them. I have a feeling. Next one. C, a hangover mask. I can't even visualize that. <laughs> um, can you give, give, give me a clue as to what the hangover mask does? That looks like, uh, what is it? Contem- interpretive dance. <laughs> I, I'm going to go with that's Dick Cheney. John, be good enough. Oh, this is Okay. It was invented in 1947 in the United States. And the thing is, it's got a bunch of ice globes, cubes glued all over it. So it keeps you cool. <laughs> it's kind of like, but when you look at a picture of it, it kind of looks like you're looking at that guy from the, the movie with the nails all over him. Hellraiser, the hell priest. Yeah, yeah. Kind of looks like that, but with ice cubes instead of nails. I, I like when you said ice globes better. It reminds me of something out of Rick and Morty. <laughs> <laughs> you grab the fleeb and the schmeckle and your ice globes. <laughs> <clears throat> D, a remote control lawnmower. John, be good enough. John, be good enough. This was real. And it was vented in 1950s in the United Kingdom. Jordan Gizegi, you've won the game. John, be good enough. Thank you for playing. How do you feel? Victorious. (laughs) (laughs) That was excellent. Has working around these new technology developments motivated you in your own life to live more sustainably? I live pretty sustainably. I like, I don't have really? a, a car. Yeah. Really? Really? Yes. I'd like to think of myself as, yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, Hot it's, shit, huh? <laughs> Hot <laughs> shit. Um, I don't, uh, it's not that I've tried to be like this. It's just a side effect of living in a city with no car. And it I just, just walk to so work every awesome. day. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, I don't there's try no. To ch- be awesome. I just am. <laughs> 
there's no charge for awesomeness or attractiveness. <laughs> continue, continue telling me how there's nothing and no one in New Zealand. There's four million people here, and it's about the size of uh, Colorado. There is stuff here. <laughs> it's uh, it's also the thing I find about interesting about the place, besides you know all the different climates that are here and the fact it was like the last place in the world to be colonized it's actually the the um a continent now um i don't know if you've heard about this no it isn't really no it isn't (laughs) well did you know about zealandia zealandia which is new zealand is just the The tip hell is that is that okay is that another douglas adams novel no it was it was actually (laughs) it was uh (laughs) It could be. Uh, yeah, what they found a few years ago is that New Zealand is just the tip of an, uh, a, a submerged continent. And I think it's actually been named as a continent now. Kiwiland. Kiwiland? Zealandia. Kiwiland. Zealandia. Welcome. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Zealandia continent. And do real-time fact check. Uh, Zealandia, Wikipedia, classification as a continent. So New Zealand, you you believe New Zealand's a continent? (laughs) Well, just the nipple of a continent. Just a little bit (laughs) sticking out the top. The rest of it we're saying is underwater, right? Yes. Oh, that doesn't count. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That doesn't count. It could be Atlantis down there. It could be merpeople. (laughs) <laughs> um, all that but if that is in the if that is the land. case we can uh, we, I think they can claim all that land New Zealand actually has a massive area if you include the ocean what were you going to say? if you, oh, if you mm, it's not land it's underwater <laughs> if it's not if it's underwater it's not land when the Maldives sink they're not going to be islands anymore they're going to be former islands underwater mm-hmm but there's still, um, if you think about it, they actually probably the, the ocean area is more valuable because it's three dimensional. <laughs> yeah. There is an organization on our campus that our electric vehicle club is unaffiliated with called the IEEE. But I really like their motto, which says that we can make the world a better place through technology. Are you an optimist? Do you believe? that the world can be made a better place through advancements in technology. Like, say, for example, your left arm gets chopped off. Do you say, at least I have my right arm? Well, I guess it depends on this. This is circumstantial. I wouldn't be terribly happy if... By the way, that is Lemony Snicket's definition of optimism. (laughs) I haven't read that book either. (laughs) Maybe I should be writing books. I I consider myself an optimist. I get absolutely thrilled thinking about the future. Maybe it's maybe I have a dissatisfaction with the current state or some sort of anxiety that prevents me from being happy with the way things are. When I look at things, I look around, I go, this could all be a hell of a lot better. And maybe when we do get to someplace better, I would still be the type of going, all right, we could still be better. But I don't, I don't mind living in that space. I don't mind uh, kind of living in the future. It drives me. It's. Mm. Just the idea of potential. 
do you believe in humanity? Overall, yeah, some. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do believe in humanity. It's just a matter of there's certain things at the moment, and it, it happens regularly throughout human history. There's a, there's difficult conversations that need to be had, and generally humans have to kind of push things to the limit before we realize the faults with the way things are doing and before we change things. You see this really often with governments, bureaucracies. They don't do anything until there's an emergency, and I think societies are, are like that as well. And they go, okay, we can't avoid this problem any, any longer. We have to face it. And I don't think that's damning to the people. That's just how we are as kind of a, a collectively as an organism. It's probably better that we're like that because there's no sense in changing things if there's nothing wrong. And nobody is intelligent enough to be able to see all the possible permutations in the future. Anytime you make a change, you're, you're generating the risk of creating failure. Now, mm. if you're running a business or a company, that's fine. But if you're looking at the whole spectrum of society, and a culture. You don't really want to change things un unless you find something is absolutely wrong with it. So yeah, I believe in humanity. It's just with our short-sightedness as individuals with a finite lifespan, it, it can look like we're dumb sometimes. But if you look at what we've done as a species, uh, it's pretty impressive. So when I asked you in our Twitter DMs, what you thought the most important thing that you want people to know was, but not enough people know. You had a couple of very good answers. The first of which was that most news sources are there to sell articles and not to provide a realistic view of what we can expect. What do you, what do you mean by that? They're not, they're not selling knowledge. They're selling, uh, Elon has called it limbic resonance. I reference him a lot. Do I, as do, as do a lot of people. He's just, he has a, a, a lot of good ideas floating around in his brain. And, and that's what it is. It's limbic resonance. It, it's playing to your monkey brain. And these news articles, most of the time, they're not giving you the ability to see what's coming down the road. If you actually understand a subject more deeply, then you don't have to check the news every day. You can just, you know, look at the headline and you can tell whether or not it fits within your model of the world. Now, that may, model may be right or wrong, but it's better than shooting like a fireball from point to point and emotion to emotion. It's, hmm. it's more steady when you develop a deep, deeper understanding of things. I mean, for instance, I could be totally wrong about what's going to arrive at battery day, but I can change my model and I can adjust my model. And, and so talking about how you say that Batteries are much more complex than people realize. How complex, how, just how complex are they? How, what is the level of complexity? See, there's this, there's this idea that I don't know the name of the theory, mm -hmm. but it's something that John Cleese likes to say. See, I reference Elon Musk a lot, but I also reference a lot of comedians, a hell of a lot of comedians. John Cleese is one of the most intelligent, in my opinion. And he says... There's this idea, the, the, the knowledge it takes to know how good you are at something is the exact same knowledge 
that it takes to to actually know that thing like the exact same amount of skill it takes to know that thing so the problem with that is that if you aren't good at something you lack exactly the knowledge it takes to know you're not good at it how complex are batteries that that people don't know Generally, most of these articles are written focused on one thing. For instance, power density. And one thing that these that a lot of articles should be letting people know is that there's other factors involved. Are we able to manufacture this material? Is this material durable? For instance, solid state batteries. There's solid state batteries out there, but they're difficult to manufacture. And on top of that, they're, they're fragile uh, because of the material that's used in them. In order to appreciate the complexity of a battery, you don't necessarily need to understand the full complexity of a battery. You just need to understand one basic concept, and that is a spider diagram. A spider diagram looks at all the different aspects of a battery. The one thing if people keep in mind, if you're reading an article about a battery, ask yourself, okay, that's, it has that great quality, it has an enormous energy density. How, how much will it cost to manufacture that? How durable is it? What materials are, are used to create it? And also take into account, will this, and probably the biggest one for me that I focus on personally is manufacturing. All the batteries in the world, current, or most of the batteries in the world currently use the same roll-to-roll technology to make them. In order for a battery to scale rapidly for manufacturing, it's best if it uses that roll-to-roll process. If it uses some other process to manufacture it, good luck with it getting any scale at all because you're going to have to develop an entirely new manufacturing process in order to get that battery on the market. And you don't just have to make a few. For instance, the Gigafactory, I think, is something like two or three million cells a day. So uh, That number is staggering to me. Yeah, it's Elon says as fast as bullets out of a machine gun. It's already that fast, if not faster, if you add up all the machine lines together. Even changing one small thing is gonna get everything has to has to stop and, and restart. Yeah. Wow! Wow! And we're, and we're talking about precision. That's the precision is ridiculous. That's required there both in terms of the chemistry of the cell and like just the casing of the cell itself. It has to be down to, you know, they must be down to less than millimeters because I don't know if you've ever opened up a battery cell before that jelly roll is wedged so tight into that shotgun cell that you Mm -hmm. can't even, you, you can't pull it out. It's just absolutely wedged in there. So how they get it in there in the first place, I don't know. It's kind of like when you take something out of the packaging and you can never get it back in. It's like, how did they get that in the first place and then do that thousands of times or millions of times? Mm. Then the chemistry, you're dealing with like five nines of precision past the decimal point, something like 99.9999% efficiency within the battery. And that's ridiculous too. Mm. Anything that's a revolutionary change, I think of it as... Like moving to solid state to me, like the, the idea of going from what we're where we are now to solid state is like, in the evolutionary way of thinking, it would be like going from a fish to a dinosaur. There's got to be smaller increments in there in between. Well, the fish just leaps out the water and smacks the dinosaur <laughs> in the face. 
All right. Take five seconds. <laughs> Fish flap. <laughs> Sharknado. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's why in your in your Shirley Mong video, you you do mention that it usually takes around ten to twelve years to actually road test and get a new battery out from conception to to actually printing the battery takes ten to twelve years and she wants to along with the battery five hundred, they want to come out with the eight year <laughs> <laughs> the eight-year implementation of this technology and consumers as i said in in response to to what what you said about people wanting to know what the impacts of a certain technology development are going to be we don't know yet but what i said was it's consumerism it's i want it now and in addition to that there is such a the thing is a death clock in the human species. That's what I call it. That's kind of my term, but it's real. It's, it's a death clock on the human species. And we have a date. It, it, it fluctuates every now and then based on climate consensus, but there's always new data that are being added into the mix that we weren't expecting. Sometimes that death clock date moves up and we've, in the Western world, certainly we've overshot K. An American uses the exact same energy consumption of 63 people in another country in the world. 45 people in India. I mean, and there, as Leo says in that movie, Before the Flood, he says there are over a billion people in the world without electricity and they all want this American lifestyle. We can't live this way. Mm -hmm. And you have a series on your playlist and I mentioned Shirley Mung just now. I should say you should definitely watch Jordan's video on Shirley Mung because he, he goes into uh, a little bit about what she, what she is doing, who she is and the battery 500 cons consortium. But you, Jordan, you have a series, a playlist, I should say, on your YouTube channel about the most important people in the battery field. Are you planning on doing another episode soon? Do you think that you're going to go outside of Tesla or its acquired companies on this? And who are some of those most important people on your list? Maybe even people we don't know about. Like, I've seen a lot of stuff about uh, John be good enough, but I've hardly seen anything about Stanley Whittingham or the other members on that lithium ion team. Yes, I do want to branch out outside Tesla. I've put some feelers out to CATL. I've gotten in contact with a PR person there, and I'm hoping they can provide me with some information that's not PR that they can actually can, because what I asked them is that I said, I want to do a series of videos on what it takes to test a battery and what are the lead times. Uh, for instance, how many years do you have to test these cells before you put into a battery, before you're confident? And the different materials that go into cells, which of those do you need to test for a long life? For instance, some of the chemicals that go into batteries are just kind of stock standard. You can just chuck them in. But like, for instance, the graphite 
anode material, there's actually a physical structure there and they have to test that physical structure over time. So I think it takes more testing time as opposed to like, say for instance, lithium hydroxide. So I said, I told them I want to do a video on that if they can provide any indication of, and I also sent a te Tesla email about that as well. CATL, I asked them if I could also do a video more broadly on their company and if they could give me some indications about what makes them special, what gives them a competitive advantage, et cetera. Mm. I don't mm. just want to be a Tesla fanboy, even though I am. I do realize that there's other companies out there that are doing mm -hmm. amazing things that are neck and neck with Tesla at the moment, if not beating Tesla in certain areas. And people don't and appreciate universities that. universities too. And, and universities as well. Yeah. And th that brings us right onto your point about doing profiles and more researchers. Yes, I do. Uh, the reason why I chose Jeff Don and Shirley Mung is because they've, uh, they kind of have the biggest profile. Shirley hmm. Mung is great at spanking and she's great at taking ideas and planting them in your head and giving you good analogies for understanding things like hmm. uh, compound interest for Coulombic efficiency and how that compounds over time. Um, uh, John V. Goodenough and Stan Whittingham. I'm interested in doing profiles on them because there's, there's the videos that I do on what's coming up. And then there's the videos that I want to do a whole series on just battery basics. When I watch the videos online about how a battery works, there's huge missing pieces in there and it doesn't land in my head very well. So I imagine it's not clicking with other people very well either. There's some good ones, but just not quite there. So I want to do battery 101 videos, uh, videos, uh, profiles on people. So I originally anticipated this would be a project that lasted me till about, you know, battery day, and then I would be done with the channel. But <laughs> it's looking like this is turning into a multi-year thing. The Department of Energy puts out hundreds of pages each quarter on all the battery developments that they're monitoring. You could, you know, you could start three channels just covering the information that they put out every quarter. Mm. In terms of your point about the climate number, we have this pressing deadline and we don't really have a specific deadline. It is a squishy number, but what we do know is we're already past the limit. We're actually already past the deadline. That provides a lot of motivation beyond the consumerism. And I thought that was an excellent point. You mentioned that you wanted to do this channel for maybe a year and then do something else. But if mm -hmm. you decide to carry on this YouTube channel, I mean, first question is, how do you make money now? Second mm -hmm. question is, how, how are you going to make money in the future? Well, in terms of the income from the channel, it's, it's been enough for me to upgrade my monitor and get a chair, just quality of life things. So it makes making the videos more comfortable. And each time I make a video, I get a little bit more efficient at it. I'm finding the limiting factors in my process and <laughs> improving those so I can crank videos out more quickly. I'm get a, getting better at writing with each one. I'm learning more about batteries with each one, so it helps me with future videos each time I do one. The, the bulk of the income I'm getting at the moment is YouTube ad revenue, but that's like been cut in half in the past month because of the Rona. Mm. And I really appreciate the patrons I have. It's pretty much the amount I'm getting from patrons now is getting close to the amount I get from the channel. It's enough to make it worthwhile, it's not enough to make a living. I think I would probably need 100, 150,000 subscribers in order to make a living off of it. But the main reason I'm doing it 
isn't for the money. I'm doing it because I get ideas in my head and in order for me to fully learn them and understand them, it helps for me to make a video. Mm. And I like the process. But you have 17K. You have 17,000 subscribers, right? Um, 14,000 now. 14. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You have 14,000 subscribers. You have, what is that? That, you're, that is ridiculous. It's more people than from my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the day that I crossed over the threshold, it's like I have more subscribers than the people are. Uh, than people in my hometown. I was pretty proud of that because it really put it in perspective for me, thinking about all the people I don't know in my town mm. that I came from. And as probably maybe two dozen of my subscribers I've really had a lot of interaction with, it is a ridiculous number of people. Mm. And it happens so slowly that it, it's not daunting. Mm. Whereas if, you know, if I would have went from zero to 14,000 in one day, I would have been pretty stressed out. Cause just this week I went from 10,000 to 14,000 and that was like, I'm trying to keep up and respond the way that I normally do, but you just can't with that many people coming through. So I have to, I have to find balance. That's what I'm trying to do right now. Since you live in New Zealand the South end of everything, ass end of nowhere, maybe the Hobbiton, <clears throat> you must have a different perspective on the relationship between the United States and China and the intellectual property war that seems to be going on right now, the past couple of decades. I'm wondering what this perspective might be. Are you guys down there just caught in the middle of this? Do you feel like you yourself are, are in the middle of this? Yeah, there's uh, quite a, New Zealand is so far away from everything that you don't feel caught in the middle. You, you kind of feels like uh, you're on the edge of the earth and it, mm. it's, it feels, it feel uh, the best way to describe it. When I first moved here, it feels primordial, the smell of the air and all the ferns when you go out into the forest and the fact that there's, there's no animals in the forest, there's just birds. It's just, it's different. And you notice that even more when you leave the country for a day or two and you come back and you go, this place is just, it is a little bit different and it's just it's its own little place there's a poem i think that said new zealand is the last loneliest and loveliest and i think that summarizes it pretty well but we do get caught up in the conflict somewhat between the united states and china we're just kind of a, bo a bobber floating out here in the middle of the ocean and while these two superpowers are making waves There's concerns in the U.S. that uh, China has somehow corrupted some of the leadership in New Zealand. If I'm remembering that correctly, I think there was concerns about that a, a couple of years ago. I think there was talk about, while, while at the same time, the U.S. has those concerns, they're also trying to pull New Zealand closer to them. Mm. So it's kind of a carrot and stick approach. Mm. There's quite a long time where New Zealand in the 1980s told the U.S. that they wouldn't allow their nuclear ships here. And you, the U.S. was very much into to hardball politics at that time. The U.S. was pissed off, and it pretty much iced out New Zealand for a couple of decades. Well, those relations have thawed now, and now there's officials actually being traded back and forth again and building that relationship up again. Do China. you know what, what year about that Five Eyes was revealed 
unclassified and when the people of New Zealand found out about that? I don't know. Has it, has it always been fully classified or, 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 or unclassified? The existence of, of Five Eyes was classified for a long time. I mean, f- fighting against the Soviets. That's, that's basically the creation of Five Eyes. Want to make sure that the, the Soviets aren't going to invade the rest of the world, right? And when it, when it was revealed, there were certainly people in these countries that are like, what are you, what are you doing working? <laughs> what are you doing? I myself have have actually I'm not allowed to talk about that. I was in the military. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you guys down there, I think the best storylines that you can get a, a fictional perspective at least of what it feels like to be in the middle of these two titans is from a couple of shows that w- that were on a- ABC, Australian Broadcasting Company. Uh, Secret City is one, and the other one I believe is called Alice. Some very great shows uh, about two different characters in the same intelligence war between between these two titans and how it feels to be stuck in the middle. And it, it, Australia is especially larger than New Zealand, but I do I do feel that Australia and New Zealand a lot of the a lot of the intelligence efforts, the norms, values, beliefs, customs of the two countries are very similar. Um, of course, Australia doesn't have the all blacks. <laughs> Australia isn't where Hobbiton is. <laughs> yeah, there's, there is some cultural uh, similarities and cultural differences. I think uh, New Zealanders kind of consider themselves a little bit more refined than mm. uh Australians, which are kind of like Americans, they're a little bit, a little bit wild. <laughs> um, and um, Americans and Australians kind of view New Zealanders as a bit simple, so, <laughs> because it's so isolated here. It's um, yeah, you do get the feeling here that these people populate a country that never actually really freezes unless it gets up in the mountains and it never gets hotter than, you know, 80 Fahrenheit in the summer in most of the country. There's nothing dangerous, poisonous. There's really no way to get hurt here. You can kind of become a dodo bird here because <laughs> there's no, <laughs> you know, the story of the dodo bird, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Hunted well, extinct. <laughs> yeah. It went extinct because it didn't have any defense mechanisms. It wasn't used to having any sort of predators around. So just yes. kind of go on. And that's how it feels sometimes in New Zealand because there's, ah, there isn't a whole lot of crime here. There's just nothing to hurt you here. So it gives you a n- unique perspective, especially when you've lived in the U S your entire life where you're used to like, when you're walking down the street, a dark street at nighttime, you're used to, keeping your ears pricked to whether somebody is behind you. Whereas here you can just walk home in the middle of the night in one of the largest cities alone and just feel safe. And it just feels, yeah, you just feel isolated. Like there's nobody else in the world. Oh, I do that anyways, wherever I go, I walk around wherever I go. I'm probably strange mm-hmm. that way, but I was in New York city. I walked everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. I was I walked from Hell's Kitchen to the financial district at 3 a.m. Nothing happened to me. Yeah, I was yeah. Uh, like I spent nights out there, you know. Uh, I walked from King Street Station to the Space Needle. Nothing happens to me at midnight, I should say. I, I do a lot of walking at night in these cities where I go because I'm looking for coffee or donuts or something like that, uh, something to occupy me with. When I was down at the, the Hilton in Portland, I desperately needed to find some coffee because I had this this draft resolution that I was working on. And I was like, where am I going to, oh, I need some caffeine. And I went down to the lobby. Oh, of course, there's no coffee in here. So I had to walk three miles across the river to the Dutch Bros. And I got my coffee. By the time I got back, I had already finished my coffee. But a little bit more caffeine to work on this draft resolution. Yeah, I walk everywhere. Well, it's, um, it's a healthier perspective to have. And one thing that's living here has made me realize that there is a little, a little bit of paranoia in the U.S. about these things. Mm. Mm. You really mm. have to be in a bad neighborhood to have to, to worry about something like that. But what we're fed with, the media narrative in the U.S. is all, like I was saying before, that limbic resonance, that fear. And you realize here that that dodo bird comment, is, it's not necessarily meant to be an insult. It's just a, more carefree is probably a better way to put it. I think there's a place and a time to be kind of anxious and be aware of the threats around you. And there's also a time and a place, which is most of the time where you can just relax and understand that you're, for the most part, you're safe and everything's going to be all right. So it's, 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 it's like, uh, it's like Rohan. Elaborate. Rohan? Right Rohan is Rohan. Yes. Yeah. I do. I knew, do know the uh, writers of Rohan, and uh, <laughs> well, not personally, but I mean, I'm familiar with them <laughs> from the book. But I, I'm wondering what uh, what the reference is. Are you, are you talking about a call to arms or a time that you should get up and no, fight? Or when when they're walking through the the little town, the little village where the king lives, and they're just quaint people living in their little huts and stuff like that. And I don't. I don't bring up Hobbiton because New Zealanders are not that short. <clears throat> Hobbiton would have clicked with me immediately. <laughs> Whereas Rohan, I don't remember the villagers in Rohan. I just them all kind of remember them all being a okay. bunch of sad How sacks. About How about this one? It's like Valinor. Valinor, that's more obscure, man. <laughs> Is Valinor the island off the coast? Yeah, it's where the elves live. Holy shit. I'm surprised I got that one. I've, I've like, when I was a kid, I read a lot of Lord of the Rings, but my Lord of the Rings Lord is rusty, man. Well, isn't a Numenor, wasn't that an island off? I, I think actually, um, I could be completely wrong about this. I think that Valinor and Numenor are on the same island or one of them. And I, I'm, I could be totally, totally wrong. I know I think, that. Numenor. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Valinor was just like an entirely different continent, kind of like Middle Earth was like mm. uh, a continent, and Numenor was actually something off the coast of Middle Earth. Mm. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Numenor was off the coast of uh, Gondor. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I got you. This is obscure. I'm sure there's some people that might appreciate this conversation out there. 
<laughs> but most people are like, what the are these people talking about? I'm cutting this. This isn't in. <laughs> maybe they'll maybe they'll help me get uh, Stephen Colbert on the show. Then I don't know. <laughs> Stephen Colbert has a real affinity for New Zealand, doesn't he? Have you seen? And he's, Tesla. Uh, he's and Tesla. He has a get. He he talked about Tesla on his show. That's why I want to have him on the show. He's one of us, <laughs> like Elon <laughs> Musk. <laughs> What is the greatest adventure you've had in either sustainability or maybe just New Zealand in general? The greatest adventure I've had was, if you're talking about any adventure I've had in life, I had a friend that was a, a flatmate here in New Zealand and he invited me to his wedding in Indonesia. And that was an experience uh, because he came from a family that was fairly well off and it was like a celebrity wedding. I didn't realize it until I got there, but I was going to be one of the best men. And he didn't, <laughs> he didn't tell us anything before we got there. We just showed up and they're like, luckily I dressed pretty well. Some of the other best men didn't dress very well. <laughs> they didn't dress like best men. And then the next uh, couple of days after the wedding, he said, all right, I'm going to take you on a trip through Indonesia. And he didn't tell us anywhere we were going. Every day we woke up and he would shuffle us off somewhere. And every day there was something new. And because he was fairly well off, he knew the country really well, all the things to see. And it was just the most jam-packed, exciting and eventful week in my life, probably. It was just, it blew my mind. So the male white version of Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> well, it was uh, me and a couple other guys were the token white guys there. A couple days after the wedding, he said, wake up at six o'clock, there's going to be a taxi waiting outside. I go out, taxi's waiting outside. And the taxi's bringing me to the airport. And I don't know where I'm going one, once we get to the airport. And then another day, one evening, he said, all right, we're going to go to a volcano. So we walked all through the night and went down to the crater of a volcano where there's sulfuric acid and there was sulfur that was on fire. So there's these big blue flames every, everywhere. Uh, have you ever heard of this, Kawa Aijin? Mm -mm, mm -mm, no. Oh, it's cool. If you look Kawa. it up, yeah, go K-A-W-A-H. And then Ijen, I-J-E-N. Yeah, I see it. It's, it's, it's a really, yeah, well, that's beautiful. That, is, that water is so blue. Yeah. Well, we went in the middle of the night, and you're, what you see if you look through the images is you see uh, blue flames. You might have to add blue flame to the... Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so there's... What the, the hell is that? The yellow sulfur and then the blue flames around it. And you're just down there in the middle of the night. And then what you do is you go up to the crater rim. And by the time you get to the crater rim, the sun is coming up. So you, you've just been in this sulfuric pit with these flames and sulfur on fire. And you come up to the crater rim and then you watch the sun rise over that beautiful blue water. Oh, Jesus. I see. Oh, man. Wow. And all the pictures there don't do it justice because it's just... Those cliffs are pretty much straight up and down. And there's guys that are mining that sulfur... And just day in and day out, they're climbing in and out of that, loading hundreds of pounds of sulfur onto their backs. And these are small guys. They're like little supermen. I mean, I'm a pretty sturdy guy, uh, even though I'm small, I'm pretty strong. And I gave the guy like five or $10 to let me carry his basket just to see what it's like. I swear I could feel my back popping when I was lifting that thing up. It was just hundreds of pounds of stones and they were carrying it pretty much straight up a cliff wall by foot, of course. but. It was pretty steep. Jesus. Yeah. 
and it's about an, an hour or two walk to get in there and an hour or two walk to get out at least. What do they use the sulfur for? Um, I'm not sure what they do with it. Uh, there's, I'm not sure where it goes. I mean, there's a gift shop where they like carve things out of sulfur, but I'm sure it goes to some uh, manufacturing somewhere. Beyond that, longer term, New Zealand has been an adventure from start to finish. What is the one thing in, and you keep abreast of technology, so what is the one thing that you are most fearful of, of the future? And what can we do to fix it? And as a follow-up to that, what are you most hopeful for? I'll start with hopeful. That one's a lot easier. And actually, no, we can probably roll these two things in together because uh, it's not necessarily the technology that worries me. It's people that worry me. And we're going through a time right now where our institutions are no longer working for us and they need a facelift. And at the same time, our economic system is also failing us. Usually those two things happen separately. Like once every 50 years, we have economic problems and that gets resolved one way or another, like going on or off the gold standard, etc. And about every 80 years, we have to reshape our institutions to meet the way that society has changed. We've never had those two things happen at the same time. So it seems like between 2020 and 20, 2035, things are just going to be a mess in both in terms of our institutions and their ability to deal with things. And this coronavirus is just one more indication of that. But we've had warning shots over the past 20 years. We had 9-11, the global financial crisis. Some people might say Donald Trump. <laughs> but lots of things have happened that could have and should have been predicted. But our experts and our technocracy has completely let us down. And that can't stand. And I imagine that'll get worse before it gets better. Now, I think beyond that, after we reform our institutions and we maybe go on like a global debt jubilee or something like that, where everybody, every country in the world rebalances its books, I think after that, things are going to be pretty amazing. And on top of that, at the same time, we're going to have this explosion of technology from artificial intelligence, batteries, the medical field, and all of these things tie together in one way or another, like artificial intelligence, we can use that to explore ideas and solutions, both with green energy and the medical field. And those are just three. There's probably about a dozen. I've seen less of these things where these are the most important technologies of the next 10 or 15 years. Well, all those are going to be maturing. And I think that's going to be revolutionary at the same time that we're hitting the reset button on society. So that's what I'm hopeful for. I think it's going to be we're going to have another era like the 1950s, except better after 2030 mm. or 2035. Mm. We just have to grind our way through it. You've been listening to Pterodactyl. My name is Galen O'Connor. I'm the president of the Central Washington University Electric Vehicle Club, of which this is the official podcast. This was an interview with Jordan Giesecke from The Limiting Factor, and you can find him on YouTube. Just search for The Limiting Factor. And on Twitter, 
he's at. Limiting the T-H-E. Limiting the. Yeah, thanks so much, guys, for listening. By the way, if you were not aware, the 27th of this month is the Sustainability Awards. Woo! At Central Washington University. Hit us up. It's online. It's virtual. Man, you can come and see who's winning the stuff. Who is the most sustainable human at this university, bruh? Yeah, it's happening on Wednesday. By the way, the same day as the next episode of Pterodactyl is dropping. So yeah, check it out, man. Dude. Pal. Buddy. Right on. Thank you for listening to Pterodactyl. Drive on, young people. Drive on.